going to study uh, St. Augustine. In particular, contrary to the approach I've been taking with some of the other fathers where we concentrate on their contributions to Orthodox theology, I'm actually going to concentrate on uh, Augustine's contributions to the development of Western theology as a divergent theology from Orthodoxy. Uh, St. Augustine is a saint of the Orthodox Church, and uh, many of his writings and his uh, life you know, were good and pious, and we don't have any problem with him being a saint, and partly because in the Orthodox Church we don't have the idea that a person, when a person becomes a, is a saint, that that makes them infallible. We see the individual saints as having individual errors, which we then, each saint has to be contrasted with the consensus of all the fathers and the apostolic tradition going back to the scriptures. Uh, but the reason I want to concentrate, let's say, on the negative side of St. Augustine is because uh, the Western theology that developed after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which somewhat isolated the West from the Greek uh, fathers, who are really the majority of the fathers, became heavily dependent upon Augustine and was affected by the idiosyncrasies of Augustine, particularly when you get to the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, in a way, <coughs> is a, um, a kind of uh, return to an Augustine, Augustinian Reformation. Luther and Calvin were Augustinians who uh, were criticizing the Roman Catholic Church of their day because it was not Augustinian enough. And so you have an intensification of Augustine's ideas in the Reformation, which uh, remains intact, let's say, in what are they call the Calvinist churches, such as Presbyterians, Reform. But it also affected uh, the uh, wider well, sort of popular Protestantism, particularly the conservative tradition, uh, which actually, because the liberal tradition, which is also prominent in America today, to a certain extent, liberal Protestantism is a reaction against Calvinism, but uh, it also reacts against other things, whereas uh, the conservative Protestants that we probably mostly have to deal with are, in some sense, uh, heirs of St. Augustine's theology. And so I wanted to talk about him in this regard because this is uh, what impacts us now. What, who, when we're dealing on a missionary basis with people, uh, we're actually dealing with uh, that side of Augustine rather than his, uh, of his more positive writings. He wrote a lot. He's, I think, uh, the Latin father, the most uh, prolific. And so... Um, the study of the corpus of his writings and his life is a, could be a huge uh, undertaking, and, and we're not going to do that. We're going to just uh, focus on his theological ideas, and as I said, particularly those that influenced, uh, let's say, modern Protestantism. Augustine was a, a very well-educated person. He was a teacher in Latin grammar who uh, had converted to Manichaeism, which is a form of Gnosticism that we've talked about earlier uh, in his, let's say, kind of uh, student days in, in Carthage. He was, went up to Milan, where St. Ambrose of Milan was the bishop, and was listening to him 
preaching and and eventually uh, came to convert to Christianity. He shortly after that, being a very well educated person, uh, he was ordained into the clergy to be a priest and then later a bishop uh, in fairly short time. So uh, he went from sort of a, being a Mackey convert to a bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Uh, well, sometimes you hear him referred to as Augustine of Hippo. The, uh, Augustine, during his life, he, he began, when he first became a, a priest and a bishop, his early writings seem to reflect kind of the common uh, consensus of, of Orthodox Christianity, the patristic Christianity at the time. But during the course of his life, as he engaged in various controversies, he, in some sense, rejected this patristic consensus and created a kind of new synthesis of theology, which became the basis of much of medieval uh, Western medieval Christianity and, and of course, the Reformation uh, Christianity. From the Roman Catholic point of view, because they see theology as developmental, uh, their history, you know, that the church is always, is, as in itself, that the church is a, is a, a, a teaching uh, authority, that, it, that theology sort of progresses through history. And for them, Augustine is a great leap forward from primitive patristic Christianity to the more uh, sophisticated theology of the Middle Ages. Uh, this view is somewhat embodied in, the, in a book called The End of Ancient Christianity by Robert Marcus, uh, a scholar of, of late antique Christianity. And this is not the way the Orthodox Church looks at the development of uh, theology. We, we see that, of course, the practice we're not doing everything exactly the way it was done in the third century or second century, but we see that, that the uh, apostolic inheritance is given to the church and that that inheritance is explained in the patristic period. And although we uh, perhaps have new, you know, new fathers, new councils, everything has to refer back to this initial inheritance for verification. So you may have more, you may have a development of certain tradition or customs, but it's still, no matter how far you go, you still have to look back at the apostolic tradition and, and the, the consensus of the fathers to make sure that you're, you're what you're grounded in. Uh, and so this uh, progress, let's say, that Augustine made away from the patristic consensus is kind of a negative, uh, we would see that as a negative thing in the uh, Orthodox view. In his lifetime, well, I would say, certainly many of his ideas caused great controversy in his lifetime, but he was not condemned for his views because they were not uh, implemented into a whole church system the way that uh, it would happen later. So now, uh, you know, 1,500 plus years, we are looking at a, a, the, a theological system sort of based on him rather than uh, someone, a bishop in the church who happens to have some, let's say, erroneous ideas. And so for us, uh, while we revere him, we, we have to also be cautious. Um, the first 
thing to just mention with him in a sort of positive sense was his, uh, when he became Bishop of North Africa, there was a large amount of Donatism. So on the positive side, he uh, was one of the ones developing the ideas of uh, the, that the sacraments are not dependent on the worthiness of the, of the clergy and uh, also defending uh, that the, sac the uh, baptism reception of the baptism of, of uh, heretics as opposed to the teachings of Cyprian which had been taken up by the Donatists. And so in these things he represents really the mainstream of the Orthodox Church teachings. But uh, one thing that he did there that has become a problem, in the, became a problem in the West was his uh, reliance on secular authority to impose uh, to impose the, the Orthodox Church on, and to get rid of uh, Donatist heretics. And his uh, statement is better that a, that a few should die than that everyone should go to hell. And so this uh, led in the, in the West ultimately to the Inquisition and the kind of systematic extermination of heretics, which uh, in the Orthodox Church we don't, uh, we don't approve of the kind of use of the state, you know, to uh, punishments of death to get rid of uh, heretics. That uh, at times, sometimes in, in history, this, the state has stepped in on certain things, but that's not really a, a teaching of the church. The other uh, thing I did in passing is that his discussion of the, the Trinity, he wrote a book called On the Trinity, which he was writing at the time when the Western portion of the Roman Empire was being overrun by uh, German tribes. These German tribes were Aryan, and he, he's, Augustine lived, uh, he converted to Christianity shortly after the Second Ecumenical Council, so he was not really part of the uh, Trinitarian debates connected with the first two councils. So the, the book on the Trinity is a speculative work on Trinitarian theology. The problem with it became that after his death, when uh, Western Christians were living under uh, Aryan governments, this book on the Trinity became sort of a highly uh, used textbook on Trinit Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine against Arianism. And so therefore, the, uh, again, the, you're kind of cut off from the Greek uh, fathers. It became central to Western Trinitarian thought, and this, so the problems with it infected the West and uh, ultimately led to the, the addition of the term filioque to the Roman Catholic creed in the 8th century, the, which is one of the... Uh, uh, causes of the schism between the uh, Orthodox and Catholic Church in the 11th century. Filioque, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in, it, it means it's the Latin word meaning "end the sun," and it refers to the procession of the Holy Spirit in the creed that we use. It, the uh, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, as it said in Scripture. In uh, the 8th century, this word was added. So that in the in the Catholic Creed it says the, Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and in Augustine this comes from the, on the Trinity is a sort of philosophical uh, speculations about the Trinity in which he emphasizes 
the one essence, he identifies God, let's say, as, as this one essence, which has within it certain uh, relations which, he, which are persons, the persons. But essentially, God is the essence, and therefore, when he talks about the procession, since everything in the Trinity derives from the essence, therefore, if the Holy so for him, the Holy Spirit has to derive as much from the Son as from the Spirit, because in a sense, it's not deriving personally from either of them; it's deriving from the from the one essence of God. Whereas in the Orthodox and more traditional theology, we think of God as the person of the Father. And the, the essence is really used, the term homoousios means, it's a comparative term. It means of the same essence. And this term is used because we're thinking about God is God the Father, a person. The Son and the Holy Spirit are same in essence to God the Father. So in our thinking, the, what God is or is a person, it's a who, and the term essence is really a description of the relationship of the Son and Spirit to God the Father. In Augustinian thinking, because it's, again, it's a, it's a philosophical speculation, it's who is God? God is not a who, it's a God is a what? God is an essence, which happens to have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in it, but it's, it's a different approach and ultimately leads to a problem. But because of its emphasis on the unity, it became a favorite in contrasting with Arianism, which emphasizes that this doesn't, doesn't consider the Son to be God. So, whereas Arianism emphasizes the separation of the Son from God, uh, of course, in Augustine's uh, philosophy, that's, you know, that the unity of the Trinity is very much emphasized. Is there any question on, on that? Yes. When in liturgy we say that Trinity one in essence and undivided, that should be of the same essence and undivided. Uh, actually, I'm not sure what the Greek in that work in that is. We do sometimes speak of one essence, but the it's I think instructive in when Basil and the the Capitolian Fathers are coming up with this terminology, and it's well even uh, in Council of Nicaea, it's initially it's a comparative terminology. Now once we say, well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all of the same essence, well, then how many essences are there? Okay, well, then there's one essence. But that's a derivative idea, uh, as a, because that the, you know, that's not, whereas in Augustine, that's sort of the foundational idea, is this unity uh, this, of, God, of God's essence as the starting point of his theology. All right, now, this, of course, is, becomes important for the, uh, the schism of East and West, but what I would look at is actually something else that uh, I think you know has more impact on on modern Western Christianity. This was the controversy with someone named Pelagius, who was a uh, kind of spiritual elder, uh, teacher of asceticism, who uh, was driven in. To, uh, due, due to the barbarian invasions, he ended up briefly in North Africa. And the, uh, he was critical of, Augustine wrote a, a biography, autobiography about his conversion called The Confessions, in which he emphasizes the, 
his passivity in his conversion, that God somehow just saved him in spite of himself. And Pelagius was critical of that. Uh, Pelagius, in one sense, is typical of, let's say, the Orthodox ascetic tradition. On the other hand, he went to extremes, which was that he felt that uh, through ascetic effort that people could reach perfection through their own efforts and will. And uh, when people then said, well, what about the effect of the fall of Adam? He said, well, there is really no effect. He only he limited the effect of the fall to uh, the example, the bad example of, of Plagius. But so the problem with Plagius is that there's no uh, sorry, no no effect of of, of of the fall of Adam's fall. And this is a kind of as well. It's a mistake. And so Augustine uh, became very offended by this and, and started writing back. But Augustine, in return, then made some other uh, errors in, and it became a kind of major war between them. And, and, then, and then many other uh, fathers became involved, not defending Pelagius, but uh, being alarmed by the innovations that Augustine was introducing in his efforts to disprove Pelagius. The battleground sort of was what is exactly the effect of the fall on, on man. And for Augustine, uh, whereas Pelagius is saying, okay, Adam's fall really didn't affect us, and we really have the same ability as Adam and Eve did to obey God and to live a perfect life, Augustine concluded that the fall completely destroyed all human goodness. And so the, uh, he speaks of this kind of typical phrase is the mass of the damned, uh, meaning humanity, and that in, within this mass of the damned there's no, uh, no free will, no good, uh, no, no natural good any, any longer. Uh, so no good human nature. And also, he introduces uh, before this. I'll develop this, but first, uh, kind of as a sideline, he developed the idea that the fall, uh, the effect of the fall, besides the destruction of the goodness of human nature, was an inheritance of guilt. So this, when in the in Western theology, when one speaks about the original sin. One is meaning uh, a, a a sin for which you are uh, you are culpable for that sin from birth because and it has to do partly with this uh, text Romans five twelve sin entered the world through uh, through Adam and uh, as death entered the world through Adam and spread to all men. So, okay, it's now, uh, death spread to all men, and, and in the English translation it says, because all men sinned. Now, this translations that we see in our King James and RSV imply no connection, our, that we all sin uh, doesn't have any real connection with Adam and Eve, 
you know, in our, in our death, it sort of implies we all die because we sin. Now, in the, in the Latin text that Augustine's using, in here it says, in whom, so um, we all, death spread to all men because in, in, because we sinned in Adam. We, we sinned in the original sin, so therefore we are guilty of that, and that's why we all die, because we're participants in, in Adam and Eve's sin. Now in the Greek, this the actual Greek word here is epiho. And it's very curious, I read uh, a Protestant commentary on this one time where they were going through the different possible explanations, and they even uh, concluded that the you know the the grammatical meaning of that was what the Orthodox say it is, but then they said well but of course this makes no sense theologically so it can't possibly be that and went on to the usual uh, things but it means on account of which so, so the passage is death spread to all men on account of which all men sinned so the priority in in the Orthodox understanding of, of uh, the fall is that what we inherit is mortality, is what we inherit from Adam. And mortality, the subjugation of our life, our existence is dependent upon our earthly life. Uh, this kind of comes out in Genesis too, and that the result of that is that our moral uh, life becomes relative to the preservation of our earthly life. So uh, the imperative of survival takes priority and, and leads to moral compromises. And you could see that uh, kind of in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. The, um, so mortality leads to moral weakness. And so these, uh, in, the, in the Orthodox world, so the problem is you know, kind of overcoming the moral weakness and the way you overcome the moral weakness is through uh, asceticism, which is the struggle to uh, rectify the, the d disease of, the, of our nature, to purify our nature. So we have, kind of again, this uh, ascetic purification and an emphasis on martyrdom, because the martyrdom is the essentially the, kind of the summit of this conquest of mortality as the determinant of morality. <laughs> in other words, so you, uh, the, the martyr uh, gives up his life. And so the life in this world, he's, which normally you, you kind of, if you, don't, if you only think in this terms of this world, well, you're, uh, you're done when you die, so you have to keep going by somehow making compromises. Well, the martyr says, well, that's, we're not going to do that. We're just going to give up this life in order to preserve what's right. So we place... Uh, righteousness above survival, and but in the Augustinian approach, okay. So in in Orthodox approach, the the fall implies uh, a moral struggle, a struggle with evil, a struggle with our own uh, disordered uh, passions and, and our, our fallen nature. With for Augustine, it's not a struggle. It's rather that there's. Uh, that there is nothing, humanity has lost everything that the uh, 
the man is, is born guilty, born as the, the mass of the dam. Now, how is it then? Well, okay, let me take care of this one other part. This inheritance of, of guilt, which was attacked at the time by other bishops, as well then the implication being, because he is particularly associated this with uh, procreation passed on this, uh, this, this evil, that that was uh, kind of an attack on marriage. Now, fortunately, Augustine, like he's actually contemporary with John Chrysostom, they both uh, were defending marriage against the originist uh, heresy that marriage was a result of the fall. So in his book, on uh, seven books on literal interpretation of Genesis, he, he refutes that, but by attaching uh, procreation to this transmission of evil, he does, that's where in the in Western social Catholic uh, theology, there is a sort of uh, a sense of, of uh, looking down on, on married life as partially evil somehow. And, and he also, he saw the passions uh, themselves as evil. Whereas in Orthodox theology, the passions are part of God's original good creation, but they become disordered by the fall. The disorder of the passions is that the, 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 the body rules the soul as opposed to the spirit ruling the soul. Whereas in Augustine, it's as the passions exist because of the fall. They're part of the, the fall, they're, they're, and therefore they're sort of not redeemable. Um, and that's a problem, and, and fortunately it was a problem that even the people of his time saw, and um, many of, the, of his uh, contemporaries uh, took note of the fact that he had not that long ago converted from Manichaeism, and, which is a kind of Gnosticism, and they, they uh, identified said, well, look, you're just, you're just bringing Gnosticism in here. And uh, modern people, you know, that haven't really taken that much account of that, but there's, I think, obviously some truth to that, that uh, the Gnostic view of marriage, and later we'll see the Gnostic view, Gnosticism was, uh, Manichaeism particularly, was deterministic, is a, uh, I mean, Augustine becomes ultimately a determinist. So there's this regard to the to the marriage, but then when we oh, and the other thing is that uh, in, he didn't come up with this, but the Catholic Church today has the immaculate conception of Mary. The reason for that is that by saying that the human, the fall in human nature coming from Adam, is not just uh, damaged, but is actively evil, you, the, in Catholic theology, then you can't have Christ being born evil. So then you want to preserve, so they see the virgin birth as part of that, but also then they want to say, well, the, even Mary's humanity is not this evil fallen humanity. She doesn't have the original sin. And so the way to separate her is to have something called the Immaculate Conception. But this is very similar to an ancient heresy that was condemned by the church called aphthardodocetism, which was that uh, aphthardodocetism means uh, seeming to be corruptible. And what the aphthardodocetists believed was that Christ's humanity was different from our humanity. It was an incorruptible humanity, but it only, he only appeared to have the same type of humanity that we had. And in a way, the Augustinian theology leads to this same problem by saying that our because our fallen humanity is evil, Christ cannot assume our fallen humanity. He has to assume 
a special uh, purified humanity that's different from ours. And this is something else that's, that's uh, not talked about very often, but it's really actually a problem from orthodoxy because in orthodoxy we believe he took up our fallen humanity, which is fallen but not evil, and he raised it up uh, through his life and who he is to, to, redeem, uh, to redeem that fallen humanity and, and us with it. So that's uh, an important part of our theology of salvation that, that's excluded by Augustinian thought. The, in the Western thinking, it comes about that the baptism of infants is done to remu remove the guilt of Adam's sin so that if they die as infants, that they won't go to hell. And that's, that's uh, again, a particularly Catholic way of thinking, although you occasionally see it in some uh, uh, former Uniot uh, tracts <laughs> that uh, are put out by some diocese, but uh, it's, not, it's not orthodox way of looking at it. The, the other side, let's say, that more, has more kind of implications is his view of the loss of freedom and the loss of goodness. Uh, so for Augustine, man, there's nothing good about man anymore, and also uh, he has no possibility of making any uh, choices to repent or do anything good. So how does it happen that some people are saved? And this for Augustine is the only one who can do this is God. So you have uh, God makes the choice of who will repent and God then compels uh, the repentance of these people. And, and by implication he also uh, makes the choice of who will not repent. And he, he actually gives an example in his book on this is uh, on correction and, and grace, I think in, in the Nicene series it's called on rebuke and grace. It's the he says that a person can live, you know, a righteous life trying to serve God all his life, but if God has not chosen him to be saved, then it'll happen that by the sometime at the end of his before he dies, he'll have fallen away, and so he'll and that he never was, because no matter how righteously he lived. As and, and Christian, you know, trying to be a good Christian, that he was never separate from the mass of the damned throughout his life because he was not elected by God to be saved. On the other hand, someone who lives their life in total evil and uh, crime, if God has chosen him, then by the, before uh, he dies, God will make sure that he somehow repents at the last minute, and that person will always have been one of the elect of God. And this is because the actions and intentions of the of the of people have no significance as to whether a person is one of God's elect or one of the mass of the damned. This is only a decision made by God, and is is unconnected to anything that the human being does. So this uh, places God as kind of the uh, the decider about who will be saved, and also that he then talks about uh, when Christ prayed for Peter, he said, well, who could be then, so Christ prays that Peter would be saved, and he said, well, who would be so impious as to suppose that Peter could then not have been saved? If Christ prayed for him, he had no choice but to be saved, so because the, because God's desire, God's Christ's choice of him is 
you know, irresistible, that the, to use the Calvinist word, it, it overcomes any, you know, the, the Peter himself has no, no will in this matter. God chose him, God uh, prayed for his salvation, therefore he would, he would persevere and be saved. So the, uh, the choice and the operation of salvation are entirely uh, God's. And he, you know, to the exclusion, he deliber- you know, of any of any human uh, participation in this. And so then the, and this, if you think about the, um, there's a Calvinist a little uh, memory device called Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, which I, if you're any of your former Presbyterian, do it know, uh, total depravity, unmerited election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, that actually, I mean, Calvinism is just Augustinianism. So uh, he doesn't explicitly talk about limited atonement, but he it's implicit because when Augustine, for, for Augustine, whatever God decides is going to happen. So um, whereas we look at the passage, okay, God desires all to be saved, shall be saved. So for us, uh, God is trying, was willing to save everyone. He's dying on the cross to save the whole world. But the, what, why does it then that not everyone is saved? Because God uh, allows freedom to man to accept or reject his salvation. To Augustine, there's no possibility of human freedom. Man cannot upset, accept or reject. Man, whatever God, if God died to save everyone, then everyone would be saved. If God wanted all to be saved, they all would be saved. Therefore, those passages when he speaks of the world and all cannot refer to the whole world. That God only can be willing the elect to be saved. God can only be dying to save the elect. And so these passages have uh, a very limited application. So, uh, in some way, the, the, this, and this caused, there's a, did not go down quietly <laughs> at the time, uh, the, the problem with this is that it creates uh, God in a, in a way uh, who seems to be responsible for evil because that God is not, in fact, trying to save the world, uh, that God is, 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 in fact, has made the world exactly the way it is. And in some sense, the uh, Catholic doctrine of the happy sin, referring to uh, the sin of Adam as, as somehow you know, being about part of the plan of salvation reflects this kind of would be objectionable, uh, is objectionable like thinking to Orthodox that this, that sin is never happy. It's, you know, sin is always evil. We don't, uh, that the, that the um, damnation of anyone is, is not something that God uh, desires and plans for. It's, it's the uh, result of the rebellion against God. It's not God's. It's not God's plan. So we have uh, in the Orthodox thinking again the God uh, willing all to be saved, and in the Augustinian idea, God only willing some to be saved. This uh, the at the time the people who. Uh, 
uh, spoke up against this were mostly in the West, and it was the uh, monastics of, of Gaul, particularly which is modern France. John Cassian, uh, the most prominent, wrote, uh, wrote two books, The Institutes on uh, Monasticism and the Conferences, which are uh, discussions on theology and spirituality with, with uh, the monastics of the East, because he had spent time in, in uh, Egypt. And Conference 13 is seen as, because he's contemporary with Augustine, is, is really an attack on Augustine's thinking, although he never mentions Augustine. But he specifically uh, refutes these ideas and says that, that no, that God, uh, God does want everyone to be saved and that the, you know, the reason some people are not saved is because they don't obey God and they reject God's grace. And he, uh, in kind of taking let's say, the middle road here between Augustine and Pelagius, he talks about the cooperation of man and God, in which uh, you sometimes hear the Greek word synergy, which, uh, which uh, energy, today we think of electricity, but it, it means uh, activity or doing something. So you're doing something together. That's Latin cooperation. Uh, and so there's, there has to be the repentance, but that, of course, that man is not able to repent that man can't be saved without God, that we need God's grace. But the teaching of the Orthodox Church is that the God's grace is there. God is God died on the cross to save everyone. God wills everyone to be saved. God is saving us. The question is, are we are we cooperating with God to be, take part in that salvation or not? And uh, so he, John Cassian, brings that out very clearly. And actually, the uh, Supporters of Augustine, you know, realized that and attacked attacked him for that. But uh, fortunately, in the at the time, the the church uh, moderated. They didn't they moderated somewhat Augustine's views to and did not take the kind of full predestination ideas into the West. Which is why, when you have the uh, Reformation, it's because you know that's where. Predestination sort of pops up again in its uh, full rigor because they were accepting Augustine and rejecting the response. And, and actually, in the uh, I had a, a student one time who was uh, horrified to find out that our Orthodox fathers were semi-Pelagians, uh, and he was very upset about that. But well, the term semi-Pelagian is not uh, a patristic term; it comes from the 17th century. From Calvinists looking back, because John Calvin, you know, his Institutes is really a, a review of church history, where he looks at Augustine and says, "Well, yes, he's right about everything." You know, he just goes through, and that's exactly it. And then everyone who didn't agree with him, well, they're all heretics. So he kind of rewrites church history, uh, looking at essentially all the Orthodox fathers as, uh, you know, not measuring up to to the fullness of the the Augustinian revelation and. But this, so our theology, uh, you know, the patristic consensus that we uh, reflect in our in our modern Orthodox theology is coming from this John Cassian's response, and then uh, Saint Vincent of Lorraine, uh, which is a, a monastic uh, community in the south. He, this uh, famous saying of you know what is the Church's teaching? What was believed everywhere by all at all times? Well. 
I think I mentioned it, you know, when I was talking about the Gnostics in the second century, but he, he wasn't thinking of the Gnostics when he wrote it. He was thinking about uh, St. Augustine and saying, well, this is all, uh, you know, this kind of made up stuff. It's not, it's not our church's tradition. And he, he rejected these ideas. And fortunately, uh, many people did. Another uh, one who's, I don't know hardly anything is saved of his writings is Faustus of Riez, uh, the Bishop of Riez, who uh, talks about the goodness that God created the human nature to be good, which is right, and that that good nature was damaged by the fall, but it remains good. And this is, our, again, going back to the orthodox conception of the passions, that the passions are, are God-given, but in our fallen state, we, they're, they're, uh, they're, the problem is that they're, they're taking over, so that's why we have this ascetic struggle to restore the, the, the order of the human nature, but not that the, human, that the, that the what God created, the nature of man, is not bad. Uh, so we have a conscience. And so the, one thing they talk about is that the, the conscience is part of our nature, is God-given. Our conscience can be is damaged, and so therefore we can sometimes it can sometimes be perverted by our sinfulness. But but essentially these things are are good. Now, one of the results of Augustine's ideas was that in his own lifetime, he, uh, well, before I say that, I'll just say one other thing about his, his ideas. This actually even kind of uh, ex expanded in his Trinitarian theology. He places the, the will of God as the, as the characteristic of the divine essence, and that the, and so the, the will of God is omnipotent and uh, unchangeable in, in a way that makes not just so okay fallen man you start out with oh fallen man you know is too doesn't have any free will left so he can't decide to repent but ultimately Augustine's theology goes further and says that essentially since God has a sort of omnipotently willed everything that will ever happen in the universe unchangeably as part of his essence the uh, in Augustine's universe is is a completely uh, predetermined universe that in which there is no choices by anyone about anything, because God has uh, predetermined every every single thing, and so it's uh, it's ultimately goes right back to the Manichaeism that he formerly held, in the sense of uh, you know everything being predetermined and, and human, humanity having no real freedom at all. Uh, okay. The implications of this were that Augustine came to, in a way, reject asceticism, even in his own lifetime, which, of course, he's living during the time of the uh, monasticism, and you know, it's the, it's the time of the church fathers. But he he didn't he did not get rid of monasticism, but he redefined monasticism in the West in terms of. Uh, he looked at the community in Acts, and so for him, uh, monasticism was essentially a community or an institution to which uh, humanity conformed. Human beings conformed. You live in conformity to the institution, and that actually, uh, still, if you think about you know modern Catholicism, that's kind of this it has I think. Uh, Continued through this ideal idea of kind of salvation by conformity, that the institution itself sort of saves you. Uh, 
And uh, you don't, it's, it doesn't have any emphasis on individual struggle or individual salvation. Uh, this was in contrast, actually, there were some, <clears throat> you know, so there was some conflict with monks who were coming from the East, who is exiles, because in the in the East, the emphasis is on, if you think about St. Anthony and the others, uh, is on personal asceticism, the, pers the moral struggle of the individual to overcome evil in himself is kind of the center of monasticism there. So even in a communal monasticism, uh, with the Pacomius, it's still, you know, it, it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the institution of the monastery that saves you, but the, the monastery provides a framework for that ascetical struggle. This divergence between, uh, kind of, let's say, I'd say the institutional view of salvation probably is more reflected in modern Catholicism, but the, in the Protestantism, this. Uh, idea of God choosing who will be saved, it comes down to, in the modern conservative Protestantism, with the uh, being saved as a sort of uh, an act, an act of conversion that, okay, you know, are you saved or, or not? So now, the, the thing about that is where it is that the, the act of conversion and you becoming a saved person it's not, in a sense, so much anything that you do. It's it's a it's something that you then become one of the elect. So it's something that God does, and then uh, you're essentially passive. And there's in in uh, conservative Protestantism, there's a great distrust of uh, well, certainly a, a rejection of asceticism, a rejection of any kind of struggle yourself, but also even a distrust of. Uh, humanitarianism and, and, and uh, works of mercy because any kind of work on your part is you know is seen as well reject you know that you're not then their salvation you're trying to do something and of course what Augustus is saying is anything you do is completely worthless it's only God having chosen you that makes you saved so uh, that's why conservative Protestantism sometimes seems kind of flippant in a way is that, well, are you saved or are you not? And then they don't, you know, want anything you kind of want to do after that. Well, that's, uh, they're very suspicious about it. But what then what happens is that someone who says, okay, well, I'm saved. I go and I, you know, uh, raise my hand and go forward. I don't care if I have altar calls or something like that. But, but then uh, if something, then something happens in that person's life where they still have some problem. And then they suddenly say, well, gee, I, I'm still struggling with evil. Was I saved? And in Orthodox thinking, well, of course, if you become a Christian, you still, you're going to be spending the rest of your life struggling with evil because you have this effect of the fall and you, you are, you're working against it now. Is that, For the, yes. Is that that inclination to be disobedient? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we still have, so we have the weakness and we have to struggle against that weakness as Christians. From the Augustinian idea, there's no such thing as, there's no, you don't struggle. God makes you a Christian. So if you have a problem still that, that then makes you suspicious, that perhaps you're not, you, this, at that point you weren't saved. So I, I have a, a friend of down Orthodox priest who, you know, was baptized many times as Baptist because each time he'd be saved and then 
You know, something can happen and he wonder, well, maybe I wasn't really saved that time, so next altar call, you know, he'd go up and be saved again and be baptized again and, you know, then he'd become a, you know, well, now I'm saved, but then same thing would happen. And, and uh, in some cases, a lot of people, ultimately, they become into despair because since there's nothing they can do to become Christians other than to ask God to save them and, and somehow they're not having uh, the emotional things happen that they expect to happen or their problems to be solved the way they expected, they become to feel, well, I must be, you know, if God's, if, God, if I'm not, maybe I'm not one of the elect because here I am going up, going up to the altar every time and uh, I must just be one of those, you know, mass of the damned that uh, he talks about. But it's, and, and so on the other hand, you have a sort of, uh, almost artificial attempt to create this enthusiastic Christian life on the part of the people who feel they're saved because that that emotional enthusiasm is sort of the justification, yes, that I really am saved, that God, I am one of God's elect. And uh, you look at different things. Calvinism uh, talks about prosper prosperity as kind of a sign of God's favor. Uh, so there's a lot of psychological damage, I think, that comes with this view because it, it, uh, it's, it's art of, it, it ignores the continued existence of evil and it, it takes away uh, the real uh, ability to struggle against evil that we have as Christians. It, it tells us we don't have that ability we, that, and we don't, that we don't need. If we need it, then there's something wrong with us we, and we have to be, be saved again. But this... Uh, so it's it's a it's a great divide in the Christian world between this uh, traditional monastic or ascetic uh, life, the life of struggle against evil, versus a kind of artificiality. And uh, I think that's all that I was going to say. So if you have any questions, I'll try to answer them. Yes. I presume that Augustine was a member of a, a synod of bishops in North Africa. That's correct. Uh, how come with him producing book after book and giving sermon after sermon and so forth, quite in public, mm -hmm. with this kind of teaching, why did his brother bishops not do anything about it, or did they? Yes, uh, well, the worst of it, uh, the, I think On Rebuke is the worst book that he wrote, uh, was near the end of his life, by which time he had already a very great reputation. He was he was a very learned person compared to everyone else. So that there, I think, in some ways, uh, and he wrote so so much on on so many subjects that it was hard, perhaps, to pick out. Now there was a lot of opposition to these ideas, but. Uh, not so much in North Africa, but in particularly, as I said, in Gaul and Italy. But in Italy, uh, this is where his uh, uh, willingness to use uh, political force, because initially the Pope did not accept uh, this stuff and did not want to condemn people who didn't accept it. But then, kind of under pressure from the emperor, Okay, then they, every, all the bishops in Italy were expected to sign a document uh, endorsing Augustine's theology, and uh, 28 bishops 
refused and asked for explanations, further explanations of what, what in the world would he, would he mean by all this. And Augustine, I think, believe he bribed the civil officials to make sure that all of those bishops were immediately exiled without having any opportunity to debate this, uh, this issue. And so what, you know, he used against the Donatists who were, okay, we say the Donatists, they're schismatics, okay, but uh, in a way he suppressed, he had enough influence to suppress debate, at least in, in Italy, the, the, the uh, and in Gaul too, the, you know, the monastics and uh, the, the people connected with Lorenz, who were also, were, some were bishops, uh, were definitely resistant to his theology, but, um, but they also had to be careful of the, you know, secular authority being used against them. That's so the church didn't perhaps have the freedom that it, that it needed to really honestly debate what were the implications of all these ideas of his. And of course, it was, you know, near the end of his life, and it was also at a time when the empire was uh, collapsing because the uh, at, at his at his time of his death, the Vandals were overrunning Africa. So. This was, uh, Rebuke was written very shortly before his death. So there wasn't time, I guess that's, that's funny. I wanted to say with the, you know, in, in the West, um, the kind of two things, several things, the uh, development of liberalism in the 18th, 19th centuries, uh, well, development of, of, of agnostic atheism, particularly, the, is largely a result of the negative view of God contained in uh, Augustine's theology because, I mean, this portrays a God who, uh, you know, it's, it's not very nice, you know, that God is sort of, and seems to be the author of, of evil, and, you know, the explanation is, well, it's all a mystery, we can't understand it, you know, God's, God somehow made all this happen this way, and all these terrible things, but really it's for some good. So, uh, when you get... You know, the, the fact that in the West today, uh, in Western Europe, there's you know, most people are not Christians. It's I think a large part of that has to do with with Augustine's uh, you know, sort of the negative aspect. I, I'm not at all touching on something uh, that uh, Alexander Columbus in his River of Fire he talks about the doctrine of hell, which he I'm not sure that's entirely an Augustinian invention, but it's but it is certainly that 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 negative view of God as the punisher, the one who is out to get you, uh, you know, which, and then that negativity also kind of comes into other aspects of the theology of salvation. Uh, all of it creates, you know, a, a sort of evil view of God. I mean, they don't want to say God is evil, but the thing is, you know, they're, they're kind of a, a hostile uh, view of God that that I think may, many uh, Western Christians turn away from God, and and Calamiris sort of makes the point that you know uh, somehow the the pious re, you know the sensible and pious reaction to to Calvinist to this type of negative God is is to be an atheist because it's somehow you know it's more pious to be to not believe in any God than to believe in the type of God that Augustine portrays, and uh, well especially as it develops in the in the Calvinist West. But I think that's true, and that's that a lot of the hostility to Christianity that we find in the world around us is a hostility to this uh, characterization of God, and that part of what the orthodoxy can offer is to take take away that false 
picture of God, and, and the God is the, the lover of man. He's the, you know the one who uh, is is has done everything. You know, is is trying to save the whole world, which which Cal, you know which Augustine takes that away. And so, uh, the more positive view of God, I think, you know, could be a great uh, spiritual restoration for Western people.